seated. Good morning, friends. As always, it's a pleasure to be together in worship this morning, and I hope that you are strengthened and edified and encouraged by being together for worship and for the communion time, which is an important part of our worship, and for prayer and for the reading of Scripture, and a hope, by the grace of God, will even be edified through the preaching. Amen? Would you bow with me for a prayer before we begin this morning? Father, we are so grateful to you for providing all of our daily needs. You give us our clothing and our food, and you give us the breath of life for however many days we have. And when our breath returns to you, uh, we are not abandoned by you. Even though our bodies decay and turn back to dust, you don't forget about us. You've promised those of us in Jesus Christ will one day have a resurrection like his that will be restored to you and that we will enjoy an eternal life with you in your presence, um, comforted, fulfilled with our needs met and able to praise you and to live however this will be in the world to come uh, in fullness and fulfillment. And so we thank you for that hope. And God, we hope along with you as Jesus taught us to pray to be part of your inbreaking into this world now so that that future hope and that future kingdom can begin to show up in the city around us and the world around us day by day as we trust you, worship you, and serve the people in the world around us with your love. Help us to do this with great strength and with energy and with commitment. Help us to use each of our days, as many as you give us, to the establishing of your kingdom to be fully dedicated to you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, and together we say, amen. So this month we are talking about dedication, and last week we had a beautiful way to kick the month off with dedicating 20 of our babies and the parents of those babies, and we had grandparents galore in town with us to visit, and it was a, a wonderful day. Hopefully your team won an important game last week and you're happy about that and everybody came back rosy and cheery to worship this week. As we continue to talk about dedication this month, we are doing it with this great commandment in mind. The great commandment, of course, is the prayer from Judaism, the Shema, that Jesus prayed daily with his family we ended last week's lesson by thinking about Jesus, Joseph, and Mary going home from the temple, from having this encounter with Anna and with Simeon. And when they go home, they work hard and they eat their meals and they pray the Shema and they uh, take their baths. And in this way, Jesus, as a young child, is being formed spiritually and growing up in strength and in grace, and he's becoming a young man of God. And uh, this prayer is still deeply meaningful for us because it was given to us again by Jesus. We have this in three of the Gospels, and it shows up in slightly different wording in the Gospel accounts, but it's always the same Old Testament prayer that's reflected. So, uh, in fact, why don't we read it out loud together this morning? Let's do that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, we're familiar that in some places in the New Testament, it says, and with all your mind. And then in one place, it says, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And this is very simply because the Hebrew word me'od, from which we get strength or muchness, uh, is a word that could be understood as with the wealth of your mind or with the wealth of your possessions, everything God has entrusted to you. And so this prayer, uh, in each of its verbal forms, is a prayer of total dedication, of complete commitment, of being all in for God's purposes. It truly is the foundation of our spiritual life, to pray a prayer that releases our commitment back to God and then listens to see what God might do and how he might direct us to live in light of this prayer. And so each week uh, for the rest of this month, we'll take the prayer and we'll compare it to another text from Scripture. And when we look at the other text, which today is Isaiah 58, through the prayer, we'll see some things that God might show us that he might bring to the surface to help us to learn. So today we're taking the prayer and we're taking Isaiah um, 58 and we are comparing these together. And I see there's a typo on my slide. It says Isaiah 48, but we're in Isaiah 58 if you want to join us there in your Bibles. We see a problem for the people of Israel in Isaiah's sermon this morning. When he speaks to them, he speaks to them as if their diligent worship is falling flat in front of God, as if everything that they are doing to try to honor God and to speak well about God, to sing to him and to read scriptures and specifically their fasting is being ignored by God. And this is a problem for them. Uh, they don't want their worship to be ignored. We don't want ours to be ignored either. We want to be heard by God. And so uh, we, we're just reflecting on the problem right here. Day after day, Isaiah said, the people seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. Uh, wow. People who are dedicated. People who seem, at least on the surface, eager to know God. And they have uh, some questions for God because they're eager. They say, we are trying here. We're fasting and you're not listening. We're praying and you're not responding. Why, God, are you not answering when we're worshiping you? And God responds through Isaiah with this startling sentence. He says, you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. So the problem for Isaiah's people that are receiving this sermon is they're worshiping with forms of worship that seem to be accurate forms of worship. And yet, the worship isn't making it through uh, to God. He's not receiving it, he's not accepting it, and he's not responding to them. And if we learn anything from the great prayer from the Shema, when we give God our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, we're hoping that God is responding in kind with his love and, and having something uh, to say back to us. So let's dig in a little bit to what's going on here with the people in Isaiah's time, and let's talk about it through throats. Let's talk about throats for just a minute. Okay, everybody, now this... This is easy for most of you, okay? But we do this game with little children when we're teaching them to identify all their body parts where we go, uh, you know, I'm going to get your nose. You know, where's your nose? And then they, you know, they point at it. And then you grab their nose and then you go, I got your nose, right? Okay, so this is very easy. You all did this like 20 years ago or 60 years ago. Point at your throat. Where's your throat? Okay, good. See, you're very smart people. You're intelligent people. Uh, now, uh, some of you, now this might take 
a little insight. You're going to have to think on this one, okay? Everybody point at your soul. Okay, see, I see some of you getting it. Okay, everybody point at your soul. Some of you, okay, this is what we do when we sing VBS songs, right? Everybody point at your soul, okay? Yeah, the, it's, the, it's the homonym, right? Uh, homophone. So you point, at, you point at your soul. So we'll sing these VBS songs where we talk about our heart, our mind, or our soul. Nobody knows where to point. Where do you point for your soul? And so they point at the bottom of their foot and ha, ha, ha. It's like the cobbler who put on the sign of his uh, shoe store, I can heal you, H-E-E-L, I can save your soul, S-O-L-E, but don't expect me to die for you. Uh, this is a fa fascinating little word here in the prayer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The word soul that we receive in English, we think of as something that's hard to point at. Some invisible essence of our being, some interior substance, some spiritual matter, maybe it's some kind of dark antimatter that makes up the other half of what it means to be human. Uh, I guess as a child, I often thought of the soul kind of the way you think of as jello. It doesn't have any particular shape and form. And you can eat as much of it as you want. And it never fills you up. You know, it's in there. But you don't know where it is in there. The Hebrew word that we receive that becomes our English word soul is the word nefesh. Everyone say nefesh. Nefesh. Nefesh is soul in Hebrew. And we get the English word soul that has been influenced by years, decades, centuries, now millennia of philosophic insight, especially from the Greek and Roman cultures that has taught us that a soul is this immaterial other part of you that's all over in here and yet nowhere at the same time. It's the jello substance. But when the Hebrews used the word nephesh to talk about a person, they were using the word for throat. Nephesh means throat. So, the writers of the Hebrew Bible can say, uh, my nefesh longs for God in the Psalms. I'm thirsty for him. In a dry and weary land where there's no water, my nefesh, my throat is parched for God. And we would often translate that, that in the English Bible, my soul longs for you. Whenever the Hebrew authors talk about a number of people in an assembly, they might number it as there were 450 nefesh in attendance that morning, 450 throats. Okay? Now, we don't talk that way, do we? We don't count people by their throats, uh, we, but we might say there were 450 souls on the airplane. And so when we count, sometimes we do something similar to them. We, we count souls, but by souls, we mean people. And this is what they meant when they said throats. The Hebrew authors aren't talking about some mystical other substance or spirit. They're talking about the living embodied person. So in Genesis, when God creates Adam, it says he made him a living nefesh. When he breathed the breath of life into this body of dirt and dust, he became a living nefesh, a living soul, a living throat. And that in a culture... 
that isn't quite as scientifically advanced makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? How do you tell if someone is alive or not, if the breath of life is in them? Well, is there anything going in and out of their throat? You might lean down and you lean in front of their mouth and you see if there is. And so it's by our throats that we eat, it's by our throats that we breathe, it's by our throats that we praise and sing and worship and pray to God who has given us uh, life and food and all of these gifts. And so the, the nefesh, the throat, the soul is the embodied person. So for the Hebrews, again, to put it one other way, it's not as if you are two parts that can be separated and exist separately. It's as if when God took the dirt and he took the breath of life and he put them together, you became this new thing, a living nefesh. It's two things that can't exist exactly the same when separated. This is also what we see about fasting in Isaiah's sermon today. Two things that can't be separated and still be meaningful component parts. If you rip the breath of life out of a person, they return to dust. If you rip the, the, uh, the kind of worship that God is looking for out of a person, their worship turns to dust. It becomes flat. It dies. And so Isaiah is preaching to the people here about this kind of fasting, another use of the nefesh of the throat, in which for a time the people choose not to swallow life-sustaining food for some purpose. They choose not to ingest for a cause. And in particular, the cause that they have chosen is to get God's attention. Listen to us, God. Why are we fasting and you do not hear? Well, God responds, is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Is this the use of your throats that I've got planned for you? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and lying in sackcloth and ashes is God's way of saying you can fast in a technical sense. You can have technical humiliation of the body in worship and yet it hasn't reached to becoming true worship. There is no breath of life in your worship. Isn't this the kind of fasting I've chosen, God says. To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. So for God, there is a component of action, of human compassion, of seeing the needs of another person while I am in my fasting. While I am hungry, it draws my attention to the fact that there are others who are more hungry. While I am denying myself, it reminds me that there are others who are also denied. And I feel my heart begin to love them and extend towards them with an open hand. And then God says, there is life in your worship again. There is life in your fasting. Is this not about sharing your food with the hungry? and providing the poor wanderer with shelter. And when you see the naked, to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood. God says, this is what I want your worship to produce. I'm hoping that when you sing and you fast and you pray, that you find yourself with deeper resources of human compassion than you've ever had before. 
And then your light will break forth like the dawn. Do you remember that Jesus said to us, you are the light of the world. How do we become the light of the world? What do we do to let the light of the world shine? Is it that we worship with technical accuracy? Well, it's not less than worship, but it is certainly more than empty forms of worship. It is worship that honors God in form and in intention that connects with the heart of hurting humanity. So God says, your healing will appear, your righteousness will go before you, the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You'll be surrounded by God's presence, front and behind and on either side, as you begin to fulfill your worship by caring for the people in the world that I have put around you. And today's question for us is very simple and very straightforward. Is do we see that our worship and our attention to others' problems in this age, now, in this world, this era, are linked? Do we see that our worship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is meant to drive us deeper in to involvement in the problems of this world and into compassion? We certainly see it in a lot of places in Scripture. And if we choose to pay attention to them, we'll see that the people Jesus rubbed shoulders with were changed forever by this insight from sermons like Isaiah's. James was the half-brother of Jesus. He grew up in the same household. So when I say that Mary and Joseph and Jesus went home and they began to do the practices of life like having breakfast and saying the Shema and going to work and coming home for lunch and working some more and taking baths and going to sleep, we don't know how many years it was into the raising of Jesus when one of the siblings came along, but he had several siblings in the home. And so like myself, who's an oldest child, there was a moment for Jesus whenever his wasn't the only voice in the house. I remember whenever my brothers came onto the scene. I don't remember much about Eric coming into the world because I was only two and a half. I think I just remember echoes of the emotional trauma of someone else taking away some of my glory and attention. But I remember when Ethan came into the world, I was six at that time, and we were so excited. We had picked out dozens of names for him, most of which were completely inappropriate. And finally, from a Western program that we enjoyed, we had found the name Ethan. My mom and dad had already liked the name Ethan because it was in Scripture, and when we proposed it, they said, that's a great name. We ended up naming the baby Ethan. And we weren't so much jealous of him because by then we had learned to live in a home with a couple of siblings. We were just excited to have someone else to pick on. What was it like for Jesus when these siblings showed up in his home? At some point, James was one of them. So Jesus has been growing in the prayers and the routines of his family. He's being formed and growing in strength. He's becoming more godly day by day, which is a remarkable thing to say about God in the flesh, isn't it? And yet, this is exactly what Luke 2 teaches us. And then here comes James into the home. Little Jimmy, Jimmy son of Joe, Mary's boy Jim, comes into the house and Jesus and James are growing up side by side, eating the same meals, saying the same prayers. And yet James, at one point in his life, does not believe that his brother Jesus has the right interpretation of Scripture. When Jesus is teaching, preaching, and 
finding disciples, his brothers and sisters and mothers show up to take him home because he's an embarrassment to the family. James is among those who come to take Jesus home and say, he does not have this right. We're sorry, everyone. He's out of his mind. And yet later, Jesus' brother James will write these words because he has rubbed shoulders with Jesus for long enough and had his mindset changed about what God wants from us and what worship is all about. So, Jimmy will write, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It is both about technical obedience and some humiliation and from keeping yourself from becoming worldly, but it is also to be engaged in the world by caring for those people that God has placed in front of us. These are two halves or two sides of the coin of worship. This is what embodied worship looks like. Just like embodied breath of God creates living souls, living beings, living nefesh that cannot easily be separated. Living worship creates good deed doers, hospitality givers, mercy sharers, food providers that change the world around them. And I think there are lessons for us to learn as a church body uh, and as individual worshipers today from, uh, from these ideas from Jesus and James about what it means to be a truly embodied worshiper of God. If we spent a few minutes thinking through how worship works for us, I wonder what we would discover about its effectiveness. I wonder if we ever are plagued with the same questions that Isaiah's people are plagued with when they say to God, we're praying, we're trying, but we feel like we're not being heard. Do you ever have any prayers that you offer about the state of our world or about our county or about your family or about our nation or about your own maturity or about your health that you feel like aren't being heard? And Isaiah through Jesus and James and other scriptures might say to us, there are some patterns of worship deterioration that we could look at to see, am I living in this downward cycle of forgetting what I'm called to in worship? One step often looks like this. We don't set out to forget about the people in the world that are hurting. We simply become unaware of others' problems. As we have our own burdens and we focus on all of our own work and responsibilities, and as maybe we have been taught that worship is otherworldly and not this worldly minded, we become less and less aware, maybe apathetic, maybe simply forgetful, but we start to think of worship as something that we're doing to invest in the kingdom to come. We're getting jewels in our crown or uh, rooms added to our mansion by worshiping the right way. And meanwhile, God is thinking, but with your prayers and with your fasting, you could be bringing mansions and jewels into the world now to solve problems of the people that are next to you. We might find ourselves cycling down again a little further into this disintegration of having unresolved emotions. I think all of us experience this from time to time, and it's a gauge or an insight for us on how we're doing in spiritual health. Do we find ourselves upset in every news cycle by what's going on in the world around us? 
I'm not sure it matters so much which kind of news you're consuming. Do you find yourself to be frustrated, enraged? Do you find yourself to be grieving, to be tense, to be uh, wishing that we could just flee the world and all its problems? When I feel these ways, when I see things posted on Facebook or running through the cable news networks and I find my heart beating faster, uh, sometimes God gives me the grace and the awareness to ask, why? What is happening inside my heart at this moment? What could I do about it? How could we think differently about these cycling emotions and frustrations that cause us to begin to point the finger and blame others until sometimes we find ourselves at this final lowest level of disintegration in our worship, where we become so frustrated for so long by unresolved emotions that we then reintegrate them into our worldview, but we leave them unchecked. So we feel that now, because the world is so messed up, because people are so wrong that I have a right to level them or to blast them with my truth. Uh, in volleyball, you watch people you know, bounce this ball back and forth over the net, back and forth and back and forth with the final intention to at one point be able to set the ball up so that you can spike it in their face. Amen, church? This is why we love volleyball. It all looks like we're having fun and playing games, bouncing ideas back and forth, back and forth, until one moment we get a chance and we slam it. This is kind of what the unresolved emotions of the news cycle are like. We get these memes that come through our Twitter feed or on Instagram, and we think, boy, that really points out why those people have the way of looking at the world wrong. This'll show them. And like a volleyball, we just bounce the meme down the road. We hit share and it pops up on our wall again and we think, we have this cathartic moment where we think, now I've solved the world's problems. And when we find a really good one, I mean a really caustic one, we think maybe this isn't Christian enough, I shouldn't share it, but you know what, the, they need to know the truth and it's, this mo it's the moment, the volleyball is above the net, we find that we we have more jump in our legs than we ever imagined we have, and we can slam them right in the face, spike them with the, the meme. And so what do we do? We reshare it or we repost it. We, we send it on down the road, and we feel as if we've won some kind of game, as if we have won what it means to be right. This is when we're enticed by our disintegration in worship, really, by our sinful desires, to point the fingers and call names and to blame people and to return blow for blow what they're doing to us. And just look at what else James has to say in James chapter 1. Right around the verse that says true worship is this embodied mercy for others where we're keeping ourselves pure and also caring for orphans and widows. Right around that, James will say, brothers and sisters, dear ones, take note that everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. In our world today, this might show up in many places, but probably nowhere less than in the way we use our internet accounts. And then certainly also, this should show up in the way that we talk to each other and about each other when we're not in the room, and in the way that we talk about the people on the other side or the other party, 
or the people who are voting in our town for something to be done that we disagree with or whatever the issue might be, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because those who consider themselves religious but can't control the tongue are deceiving themselves. Just like in the day of Isaiah, those who fast and those who mourn and those who pray and those who do technical worship and yet are allowing their apathy and their unchecked emotional responses and the disintegration of their emotions into hatred and finger pointing to control and rule their life, they're going to discover that their religion is worthless in the end. It didn't save the world. And it might not even have been saving our souls. So there's some hope in Isaiah. Hope for change. Hope for us to think differently about what we do and how we integrate our worship in a hurting world. If you do away with the yoke of oppression and the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then, God says, your light will rise in the darkness. You'll become the light of the world. Your night will be like the noonday. So to my fellow millennials and to the Gen Z people in the room, when you see that a baby boomer has reposted another meme about how our generation are snowflakes, resist the temptation to respond, okay, boomer. And for those of you who are boomers and who act like you don't know what I'm talking about, be honest with yourself. And for those of you who are millennials, and Gen Xers or Gen Zers, and you act like you don't know what I'm talking about, be honest with yourself. Let's stop pointing the finger and extend the open hand. God has this hope for us that we would be like a well-watered garden. And it reminds me of some other teachings in the New Testament about springs of water, that uh, cursing and blessing can't come out of the same mouth. Cursing and blessing can't come from the same throat. Isaiah has this hopeful vision for the people of God, and this is the same vision I believe Jesus has for his church, for his beloved sons and daughters, is that when we come together as 400 or 800 souls on a Sunday, that we would be like throats that are giving forth fresh water, words of blessing. And this is an Eden picture. In the beginning, when God made all things and he took the man and he breathed the breath of life into him and he took the woman from his side, he planted them where? In a garden, a well-watered garden where their work was easy. They picked fruit that God was causing to be ripe on the trees and ready for eating and they were caretakers of the garden, but it wasn't the kind of work that came with sweat and finger pointing and sore muscles and blame at the end of the day. And God says through this Isaiah sermon that when we learn to have this kind of mercy for other people in the world and to see our worship as leading to our service to them, that we become like well-watered gardens. We begin to see the revelation scene from chapters 21 and 22 show up in history now, that there's a a flood, a river flowing from the throne of God in the final scene of Revelation. That it's watering the tree of life on either side of the bank that has fruit for the healing of the nations and each fruit in its season. And God says that when we begin to embody in our worship a love for each other and for others, that we begin to be like well-watered gardens now. 
we begin to be Eden people again before eternity. This is the hope of the world. Not that we are people who are being saved out of it, but that before we're saved out of it, we're helping save it. Think about what we can do as the family in Bentonville with our throats. With raising our worship to God and also maybe we ought to think about having some fasts. You know, Jesus wasn't against fasting. He said when he left for a time, the people would fast again. And he said in his Sermon on the Mount, when you fast, don't disfigure your faces, but keep them washed so that no one but your Father in heaven knows what you're doing. Jesus expected that maybe we would do that. Maybe by reengaging this ancient practice again, we could begin to connect with the heart of God's people that are not yet called to Jesus. With our throats we can bless. With our throats we can worship. As a church, what could we do in Benton County if we had a mind to give away some of our resources? What does it look like when we come together for Community Care Day? We give and we feed and we love and we clothe. And in some small ways, we fulfill what Jesus said is the entrance examination at the end of time. You've probably heard Matthew 25 preached in your lifetime. Matthew 25 is when Jesus gives this final vision of the judgment day, and he says that separating the people will be like separating sheep from goats on that day. And maybe you've been threatened at times in your life by this thought or burdened by it. Have I done enough to be a sheep and not a goat? You know, is my, is my fleece looking sheepy to Jesus right now? And Jesus reminds us that the entrance examination is really not hard to understand. It's not about complex theology or about ritual worship practices or technical correctness. He says, some of you fed me, clothed me, gave me to drink, visited me in my sickness and in prison. And they said, when? How did we do that? Whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And then he looks to others who, like Isaiah's day, they worshiped technically, accurately, perfectly. And Jesus says, I, I don't know who you are. You didn't feed me. You didn't clothe me. You didn't. Jesus, when did we even have the opportunity to do that? What, what moments of our life are you talking about when we denied you blessing, Jesus? We've spent our whole life blessing you with the praise of our throats. And Jesus says, it didn't make it to me. Because you didn't do it for these, I don't know who you are. This is the entrance exam. This is what Jesus is trying to create. People who worship God in such a way that it reintegrates the love part of us to look at others with compassion, to worship God, and to bless others with the same throats of love. This is what it means to love the Lord our God with all our soul and to be dedicated to him. Let's stand together this morning and let's worship with our throats.